Hello? You're back. Yeah. I can hear you. Okay. Oh, no, we've lost you again. Is it? <laughs> is it the headphones problem again? Yeah, I can't hear anything, but I can see her moving perfectly, but not, no sound. Oh, you can see her getting cross. <laughs> that little fr frustrated Anna. This is just truly cursed. Hello and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia. And with us today we've got Isabella, who is a part-time PhD student uh, at the University of Manchester. Isabella, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Would you mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about uh, your project? Sure. So I came to the University of Manchester sort of via Spain. <laughs> I knew I wanted to study in the UK because I was doing English and American studies and I figured if I want to teach academically British culture, then I should probably live in Britain at one point or another. But I didn't know what specifically I wanted to do. But when I was doing my exchange in Seville, I spent a year there and I had a course of adaptation studies. And during that course, I was asked to do a presentation and I was talking really excitedly about my topic. And then the... The lecturer said, well, that's all sounds very interesting, but it's way too much for a presentation. I mean, you're talking for enough material to do a PhD. And I was like, huh, yeah, I am talking about enough stuff to do. I could base a PhD on this. So that, that's how my project started. So I'm looking at, well, it's a very long title, but new transmedia adaptations of classic literature. And basically, their adaptation done on social media. So there is a YouTube series, and all the characters have their own accounts on social media. And I'm looking how that changes how we interact with with the text, having all those different media working together simultaneously to tell one story. Wow! So that sounds well. Firstly, incredibly interesting. I think I've seen things like this. So it would be like if you had a lot of linked Twitter accounts that were all characters from Pride yep. Prejudice or something like that interacting with each other, is that Yep, that's one of the I, that's one of the most popular ones. I think is the one which pioneered the whole thing. But you know, it's internet so it's I can never be hundred percent sure that there wasn't another adaptation earlier. But it was called Lizzie Bennett Diaries, done by a new production company called Pemberley Digital. Which makes it very difficult to talk about because it's a real life production company called Pemberley Digital, which did an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in which William Darcy is fictional CEO of a company called Pemberley Digital. That, that's very fun when I'm writing about it. Right. I've actually used that adaptation for my foundation year essay on Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> wow! You're actually, you're the first two people who knew what, what I was talking about. And I took about my reason because people were like, yeah, that sounds interesting, that's a thing. Yeah, this is because I am too online. I am just spend too much of my life on the internet. And yeah. I'm sort of obsessed by internet culture and internet history. I've said quite a lot of times that my dream job would be to be a historian of memes. So anything to do with like specific 
cultural and subcultural behaviours that can only exist on the internet. I'm just obsessed by them. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating the way people talk online. Because in adaptation studies, I mean, there is this huge debate about the fidelity and everybody abandoning fidelity and positioning themselves that we should not judge adaptation whether it's... Um... Oh, sorry, that's my cat. Uh, and he ran away. Classic cat. <laughs> anyway, I think it's really fascinating how people talk online because adaptation studies is become fidelity and everybody's saying, no, fidelity is bad and we shouldn't just straight compare the text to the adaptation. We should look at it more broadly. And then intertextuality comes in. But I think that basically the language of the internet is intertextual. We've, we talk in references online. Mm. Everything is a reference to something else. And I think that's a really interesting way of also approaching a text um, and approaching an adaptation because there are not only quotations from the text itself, but also quotations from other adaptations and other texts existing in culture. So, you know, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, those are the two main ones that pop up in nearly every adaptation that I've seen. How many adaptations are you studying for your project? Let me count. It's, I think it's 11, but I'm still in the process of writing, setting out one of my chapters. It's not my last one because curiously enough, I wrote my last one now. So it's the one before that. But I'm still not sure which adaptations will make it into the sort of final cut of it. But yeah, basically first I'm looking at Pemberley Digital as a whole because they did the Benham Diaries and then followed up with other adaptations that exist in the same fictional universe. Mm. So it's really interesting to see how the form evolved in one company. And then I'm looking at one-offs and the chapter that I just, well, sort of finished writing. It's not fully edited, but I'm you know, have all the research done, is on adaptations which were crowdfunded, mm. which are yet another dimension of interaction for the viewers. So you can not only talk to the other viewers and the characters at the same time, you can also, via purchasing perks, be part of the decision-making process, mm. even for the adaptation, which I think is fascinating and completely new. It also, some of these perks might even offer the opportunity to be in the adaptation right like when i've seen a, like crowdfunding campaigns yeah i don't know for specifically for these adaptations but for you know movies and things you might get a bit part if you donate a certain amount yeah so the perks range from i don't know we'll send you a shout out on twitter or we'll send you a postcard with original art for the adaptation to like for example for green gables fables so adaptation of and of Green Gables, it was, you can choose a poem and Anne will read it to you. <laughs> or you can have a chat on, I think it was on Skype then, nobody knew what Zoom was yet. You can chat to, to Gilbert di directly, or Gilbert. They, they couldn't decide the pronunciation in the adaptation as well, which is interesting. But the most expensive packs were the ones where you can become a co-producer. So sit in in all our production meetings and basically become part of the production team. The Green Gables Fables, I thought, out of all of them, had one of the most developed Twitter presences. Yeah, because they, they did sort of three seasons. There were two seasons with video, but between the first season and the second season, there was a sort of mini seasons, which was a adaptation of the second book in the series, which happened only on social media, so basically mainly on Twitter and on Tumblr. 
so they interacted, I think, the most with with the characters, uh, the characters themselves, and with the audience. And what is your sort of approach beyond bringing together these adaptations, which I imagine a lot of people just wouldn't have encountered? Are you sort of taking quite a textual approach, or are you looking at them as an entirely new form of media? I'm looking at them as a new development that follows developments that have been happening. Because, for example, transmedia is a term defined by Henry Jenkins, who first used it to describe big franchises, so Star Wars or Harry Potter. So when you have different media telling the same story, but unlike in the adaptations I'm looking about, they're doing it separately. So you can watch the films or read the books or play the games and you will get the same basic story. Some other media are non-narrative, so for example, theme parks. So it adds to the experience of, of the story world, but it doesn't add anything to the narrative. But here you have to experience all the media at the same time to get the fullest experience. And I think that is really interesting because it basically goes against first what Jenkins was saying, but also against what one of these scholars in adaptation studies, Linda Hutchins, she said there are modes of engagement and you can divide all adaptations between them. And it's basically usually an adaptation is when you move from one mode of engagement to the other. So telling, showing and interactive. So you can tell a story in a book or show a story in a film or interactive, uh, interactive a game, for example. But with the web series I'm looking at, you can interact and tell and show all at the same time. So I think that's quite interesting. And I'm trying to say that we're moving more towards intertextuality. And I think some of the tools that these adaptations use will be gradually adapted by just more mainstream media. Because right now, even when there is a big cinematic release, it has to have a Twitter presence or a Facebook account or an Instagram or whatever new platform appears. But I think those adaptations are taking a step further. And I think that's a trend that may continue. Yeah, I can see that in that we already, I think, see the influence of what I would think of as internet fan culture on the producers of mainstream culture. As you say, it it makes perfect sense for something like the new Star Wars movie or whatever, the new Disney product, to have a Twitter account. They wouldn't make a Twitter account for every character in the movie, but but fans will do that. There's lots and lots of roleplay accounts out there and people writing fan fiction and producing all their own sort of supplementary media that goes on top of the mainstream material. And I guess to some extent the adaptations you're talking about are an act of fan culture, just about something that's a bit more established in the world. You know, yeah, definitely. Rather than a Harry Potter thing or a, a Star Wars thing, it's going back to sort of more classical, or like classics. I think there would be adaptations of the newer stuff uh, available, but part of it is just practicality, which is the rights and the legal mm. loopholes you have to jump through. If you take a Jane Austen novel, nobody is going to ask you, like, so where are my royalties for that? Yeah. And that's much easier, especially with like big, big franchises like even Marvel or, or, or you know, Disney. Mm. You're, you're not going to touch any of those <laughs> with a project like that. Well, the Sherlock Holmes estate recently sued Netflix for, for royalties. 
Wow, I didn't know. Wow, that's... For the Enola Holmes film. Yeah. That's interesting because the Enola Holmes is an adaptation as well of a series of books. So basically what they said was that while quite a lot of Sherlock Holmes is currently out of copyright, the last 10 stories, which he wrote, I think, after the First World War, are not yet out of copyright. And these are the ones where Sherlock becomes a lot less sexist, a lot kinder, a lot nicer, a lot more human. And this is the way they portray him in Netflix adaptation of Enola Holmes. So because of that, they're saying that that Sherlock is still copyrighted. That's fascinating. I, I mean, I can still sort of understand it because suing Netflix will actually, might actually achieve something. While, you know, suing a small production company that basically starts to produce this one thing and hopefully go on to do other things because the people involved in some of the adaptations are doing really interesting things online right now. Mm. But, you know, suing them for, for copyright will just result in ha- deleting all the content, basically, which helps nobody. Yeah, I think that you're right in terms of the fact that the popularity of the, the sort of taking this approach with classics could mean that the actual IP holders of more mainstream stuff might adopt more of these strategies sort of on top of what they're already doing like adding adding interactive on top of a tv show or a movie they're already making i think that just feels like another way of engaging people with what you're doing i think it's also really interesting because these adaptations sort of pretend to be real Mm. they're all contemporary so none of the adaptations are period dramas that all of the stories are moved uh to now so even some of the accounts so the Lizzie Bennet's diaries is done by Lizzie Bennet and only very, very last sort of footnote it says adaptation and go to websites this and that to see the, you know, the cast and whatever. And I think that kind of approach is really interesting. And I could see Netflix or Apple or Amazon or whoever doing a series with staggered release, which has accounts for the characters and is more interactive or like uh, provides challenges for the for the viewers saying like if you find this you get a clue for the next episode or whatever i think that could be the direction uh, of those media it would be very interesting but then again you know big companies move slower than online culture so it's easy to do it a small group of friends set up a company hopefully make a business out of it and do something just for fun So sort of turn away from your research a little bit, something I wanted to ask you about is, I think you're the first guest that we've had on the podcast who is doing their PhD part-time. So I kind of wanted to ask, obviously sort of this weird year, notwithstanding what that's been like, sort of what influenced your decision to go part-time and how the experience has been. I mean, my decision was (laughs) made for me, sort of because I didn't get a scholarship and I knew I couldn't do it full time. Uh, but I still really, really wanted to do up my PhD. I'm still fascinated by what I do. And I think in the end, it was a best decision and the best thing that happened with my PhD because it gives me a sense of perspective. And I'm, I've been quite lucky. First, I worked remotely, continued working remotely for a company that I started working for in Poland. And I've changed jobs this March 
which was interesting because two weeks after the start of my new job, everything moved online. Uh, but thankfully, that's been possible as well. And I think it gives me just a sense of balance. So when I'm tired of my job, I can see, OK, but I have this research project and hopefully I will go into academia eventually. So if something doesn't go well at work, it's not the end of the world. But similarly, if I'm stuck with my research, I have this other well, real world to go back to, which also keeps the panic at bay of what happens if I finish my PhD and I do not find any employment at a university. What, what happens if, if I'm left with a PhD in humanities and no you know, other qualifications? So it's actually quite nice that I'm, I have this backup plan. Hopefully I won't have to use it, but for now it's nice. Although to be fair, Six years is a long time. It is. I'm finishing three years in December because I was also as a uh, January starter because I asked to delay my entry because I needed to figure out how am I going to be able to support myself and still do this. So the university accommodated me, allowed me to start in January. And it's going to be three years and three to go. Well, almost halfway through. Yes. <laughs> but still, three years seems like such a long time, especially this year. This year has been, I think, the the quickest and the longest year so far. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's not even been a full 12 months, but it's felt so much longer than the first 12 months. Yeah, at the same time, it, it's been not 12 months, but it, and it's been dragging on with being you know, locked indoors and whatever. But at the same time, it feels like I've blinked and it's, it was March yeah. when everything started. And we're sort of in this never-ending sort of dreamlike world when things just keep happening. And then at the same time, nothing is happening. Yes. Sometimes I'll look back and be like, well, I've achieved quite a lot. And sometimes I'll look at what I've done and be like, I had so much time and I've done so little. Exactly. Some days I'm like, yeah, I've uh, done this research and this, and I've read all those things and I've advanced my chapter and this is all good. And then on the more pessimistic days, I look at my PhD and I be like, it's been half a year and I've done nothing, which isn't true, but, you know. So I, I am glad for the job because it, it does give me perspective sort of daily tasks and accountability that's more day-to-day than what we have with the PhD. Not that I want, want to have a day-to-day accountability with my PhD. I, I don't think that I've met a PhD student yet that would say, yeah, I would like to have like, you know, nine to five working job with, with the PhD and accountability of what I've done that day. Oh, well... That sounds like a dream come true to me. The thing that I miss most right now is having a manager. Ah. I used to have such a good relationship with my old manager and mm. we our desks were next to each other. I could tell him what I'd done, what I was doing. He trusted me in what I was doing, but I just liked that every day and every week I knew what I was doing and I had a person that I could sort of run it by easily not just sort of send off a tentative email like oh i know that you guys are really busy but do you maybe have the time to talk to me about what's going on with me i would like to have more more of a job structure i think right now Hmm. so yeah i'm a little bit envious listening to you talking about being able to sort of switch from phd stuff to job stuff I think that would be quite nice. It is quite nice. But, you know, the downside is it's going to take me forever (laughs) to finish my PhD. Although I, you know, I do hope that since I have six years, I will not have to get an extension. Yeah, and you'll be graduating, you know, 
if you had done it full time starting when you started, you'd be graduating now into a sort of very intense and scary unstable situation maybe i mean maybe in three years it'll be worse (laughs) (laughs) what an optimist (laughs) yeah well you know at least i can think that i have a backup plan I, i certainly think that having a structure to your day that kind of having a job gives is is a very healthy thing to do and I don't think everybody works this way, but I, I quite enjoyed working a kind of re- regular hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when we had a study space to go into, I did try and keep fairly regular hours. But it's, uh, it's a bit trickier now. Yeah, I'm really lucky with, with the job because I switched jobs right at the very beginning of the madness. And I am really lucky because... They recruited me and I was very honest, which I had to be because I was doing a PhD part-time and I told them that, you know, I I won't be available full-time and I will do my best while I'm at work. But while I'm not at work, I have this other thing I need to focus about. And I was a bit apprehensive that, you know, especially of the lockdown, everybody working from home, it would start slipping. The hours would start slipping like some of my friends, not academic friends, are saying that they're doing overtime and not actually being paid for overtime because everything's sort of, you know, working from home. So the reporting is slipping. But I've been really lucky. So I do have very firm hours. And so far, knock on wood, uh, when I leave my job, I leave my job and I'm not bothered until I need to be back, which is really nice. What does it feel like? Because most of your material that you talked about is online and then you're now working online and everything is online. The, the tricky, the, one, two issues. One, when I came to Manchester, I saw the John Rylands. I went on the vaccine tour and I immediately thought, how can I convince the university that I actually need to work in the, you know, upstairs of the historical reading rooms and look at manuscripts when I'm doing basically internet studies? Still haven't figured that one out. But issue two is I keep getting distracted because when I need to check or got a quote right or that I'm referencing the correct episode, I will go to YouTube and watch a bit of the episode. But then YouTube will helpfully say, oh, you watch this. So how about you watch also these things that you, you're going to like? And that's always a struggle because sometimes when I write, I feel that the most helpful thing is to just switch off my Wi-Fi on my laptop and have you know, no messages coming in, no distractions, but everything I write about is online and I need to actually check stuff on social media platforms, which are the worst distractors of all. That's quite tricky. <laughs> do you just look at the narratives or do you also consider comments on the videos and the Twitter accounts? I consider some comments, but it's quite tricky because the algorithm of those platforms changes yeah. my experience that i have when i look at the videos today would not be the same experience that everybody has because youtube will basically change what comments are shown first and there are so many that it's impossible to go through all of them so i decided to highlight some repetitive patterns that come up in the comments and mm-hmm. look at the way that people interact with the adaptation in general or changes from adaptation to adaptation, but I'm not studying all of the comments because that would be quite difficult to do, especially since it is changing. So one day that is the top comment of the day, another day it is a different comment and suddenly the context changes. But I also write about that, just explaining that uh, even though the adaptation is done and over, it is still changing slightly because people 
uh, stumbled upon it later and they do not have the interaction with the characters available to them, but they can still interact with other viewers. So the adaptation experience is still changing even though it's been you know, done over four years ago. So Isabella, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and to hear about your research. Is there anything that you want to point our listeners towards? Sometimes people use this to promote their own Twitter accounts or anything like that. Oh no, for somebody who studies basically the internet, I'm really bad in maintaining my own accounts. Maybe because of that, because I see how much people are saying nonsense and I think that, do I really need to add to this conversation? But yeah, I would encourage people to watch Lizzie Bennet Diaries. That's a good entry point just to those kinds of adaptations. Also, Adventures of Peter and Wendy were super fun because they were across three seasons and they did quite strange things with Peter Pan. And right now, there is a, well, it's not adaptation, but it's a web series that also has a podcast that's happening within the story world. It's called The Wayward Guide. And for fans of TV, it has Darren Chris starring in it. It's interesting. He basically got with his friends from the StarKid days of the Harry Potter musical, and they're doing an interesting thing online, which is also interactive. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Anna, thank you for hosting. And everyone listening out there, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.